Hey folks, welcome back to the office hours. Um, sorry. Thank you. Thank you for inviting yeah. me here. All Thank you for joining friends. me, Barry. You know, there were, you know, for for a hot minute, um, I did think about actually doing like some solo episodes because our scheduling has been absolutely wonky. It has been wild, um, and which would just be me, you know, hollering into lecturing for thirty minutes, uh, and I don't know how to do that without a, without an audience to like you know bounce jokes off of. So or at I, least I can't a little soundboard where you can have like boy happen right, at the right. end of sentences or something, something along those lines. Applause. Um, and actually, we should probably start this episode with an apology uh, to our fans. We should probably we had, start every episode with an apology if we're being totally honest with ourselves. Okay, entirely fair. Um, to make this a In somewhat fact, I less... I introduce myself to people with an apology. Hi, sorry, I'm Barry. <laughs> um we have posted a couple recasts uh, in the last two weeks because the last few weeks have been absolutely bonkers uh, for both of us. Um, the end of the semester, things wrapping up. Also, I moved into a new home. Um, yeah, just it's it's been a lot. It's How been dare um, you. I know, I know. Um, I don't know, and and on on top of that, all kinds of other obligations. Like you know, uh, I don't know if I've mentioned it on here on the podcast. I don't think I have, but I've agreed to write a book, um, a short book, but a book nonetheless. Like I signed a contract and things. So I mean, we all knew you didn't like yourself, but. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. think we need it as as tangible uh, evidence. It gets a little and uncomfortable I, for you to point it out in this way. And as we record this in mid-May, I have 12 days to finish a chapter draft. Yes. Uh, so I should be writing. Yeah, you only um, need what? Like three of those days? So you got time. You got yeah. time. Just relax. You're right. Good. While, while uh, you know, I'm still trying to unpack a house and, you know, uh, <laughs> put kids in a new daycare and, you know, all kinds of things and, Know, whatever Once else. Again, anyway, how dare you? Yeah, the sheer audacity. Anyway, so uh, what are we talking about this episode, Barry? Oh my goodness, we are talking about just probably the most important thing ever. So, um, <clears throat> first off, I want to just pat myself on the back a little bit and say that I contributed to the ideation of, of this episode. But I'm going to let you have the honor of introducing it because I, I don't want to steal your thunder. I can't so remember, you don't remember the either. that we're... I was going to say, <laughs> so you don't remember either, right? Okay. Um, no. So we're going to be talking about this idea of what's called an articulated other. Indeed. So we're going to be using a few different pop culture references, and in particular the orcs from the Lord of the Rings setting. Uh, I say setting because we might bounce back and forth between a couple of different iterations. We have obviously the books, the movies, as well as the Rings of Power TV show. Uh, so the idea of an articulated other is, well, let's break. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this is what, this is one of those things that it's a phrase that I, I use so often. Is this like the sex talk of pop culture studies? That, like, w- th- Sorry, I mean, we have to have it a wasn't, talk. It wasn't before now, but don't, I guess here we are. Don't mind, don't um, mind the fact that like okay. I, I'm shaking so as I say this. It's... When two ideologies <laughs> love each other very much, uh, and they meet in what's called a contested space, that is a text, uh, they, in, they enter into a relationship often of uh, characterized by domination and submission. Woof. And the result uh, is an interpretation. Uh <laughs> You don't have to be so uh, explicit. You didn't even use any euphemisms. This is sometimes. Wow, sometimes keep it age we, appropriate. 
Sometimes we produce an oppositional reading, which is where the real fun happens, kids. <laughs> but that doesn't mean either one of them don't love you. No. <laughs> Just because and, there's an oppositional reading. <laughs> listen, sometimes you have what's called a no-fault deconstruction. Oh, goodness. <laughs> 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 I think we stretched that one as far we as it'll did. go. Great job. Well done. That All was right. a good bit. Right. End the so, bit. End bit. Okay, yeah, let's, <laughs> let's stop that joke um, before it gets worse or funny. So the, when we talk about articulated other, it's important to look at, I guess, it, we'll start with the two component terms, articulated and other. Articulated in this context just doesn't just mean the actual like act of enunciating something or speaking eloquently. Articulation means a construction, an ideological construction within a mass-mediated text, right? Yeah. And articulation is a production. So like a TV show, a particular character construction, something along those lines. And articulation is, think of it like a word, but the word is being spoken on behalf of a mass media. Yeah. So... Yeah. So it's again, just like, like a, stuffy speak for saying yeah. that people published uh, a piece of media, right? A, a lot of our words in academia are just fancy terms for the word thing. Yeah. <laughs> right? A text, a medium, an uh, articulation. Yeah. These are all the just, these all just mean the word thing ultimately, yes, right? Yes, 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 yes. Totally. And when we talk about an other, we're not just referring to something outside of ourselves. An other with a capital O refers to someone who is on the outside of mainstream society, or perhaps they exist within mainstream society, but they are not integrated in, in a fully or perhaps even assimilated way. Yeah. Um, so an othered identity is an identity that is stigmatized to some extent, perhaps burdened by some degree of stereotype that is reinforced by dominant society and common social understandings. Yeah. yeah so yeah. for example, well, the to, well, sorry to bring in other terms that we've used, to help uh, bring this a little bit closer to the surface, what, what's what's the what's the Marxist term used to describe like the power structure or or the dominant ideological superstructure? The not not the superstructure, but uh, you know the other is someone who kind of lives in the subjection hegemon? to uh, the hegemony. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. Sorry, made that. Tried to yeah. simplify this by bringing in other terms that we've used before, but only made things harder. Again, so, no, sorry, I'm Barry Thornburg. How are you? <laughs> no, I mean, that's a good point. Let's tie that in. So if a hegemony or a hegemony, however you pronounce that, is a dominant way of being endorsed by society, usually by its major institutions as well as its powerful elite, although yeah. a core component of um, uh, of a of a Marxist perspective is saying that the hegemony the hegemony should be defined hegemony. by the proletariat uh, the hegemony hegemonier um, if it's in France uh, <laughs> should be defined by the proletariat class instead of the uh, bourgeois class this idea of a common person normative way of living what however we choose to to define hegemony in terms of where it comes from quite honestly yeah, i just wanted to bring that language in to make uh, uh the conservative wing of our audience just scatter oh mark says ah oh, no yes uh you know really alienating that whole turning points usa part of our base right yes. <laughs> um uh the idea is that if you're an other you may be subject to the hegemony, but you are not a part of the 
class in which the hegemony is derived from. Yes. Yeah. Right. You're an outsider. Right. And that outside identification may come because of things like race, class, gender, uh, sex, ability, age, educational level, occupation, any number of things, right? If you've ever felt like you didn't belong in an environment because of some aspect of your identity, there's a decent chance that you were an articulated other, right? Yeah. In that yeah. context, right? This was this was uh, the case when I, I used to work at um, a place that, that Barry is very familiar with that is a private university. And I often found myself um, conceptually at odds with that institution, not because of anything the institution had done necessarily, but because it was a very expensive place to attend, right? The yeah. kind of students who went there came from the kind of tax bracket that if I work real hard and I'm kind of lucky, I might die at, right? <laughs> and so there was a lot of, there was a gap in between how I saw myself as someone who's more comfortable wearing, you know, work boots and jeans and, you know, like a, an untucked button up shirt, uh, in an environment that often felt very sort of one percentery. Yes. Right. Yeah, totally. Right. And so in that, in that space, I saw myself as an articulated other, right. And, and, and could confirm to some, to some extent that perhaps I was seen that way in my uh, own environment. Um, in, just to parse out the language a little bit more, and and maybe this is just a moment for Barry to understand. We won't publish this, but um, we're at that point. Are, were you an articulated other, or were you considered an other? And it's it's when we advertise you or like publish something that points you out as an other, like so like I, when they did when the the student project did those posters throughout mm -hmm. the school of com, and then you were framed, literally framed yeah. as. A uh, you know a, a professor that identifies as Latino and then 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 is that an articulated other that's on display? But you, Gabriel Cruz himself is not an articulated. I, I'm just trying to work out the language here. That's a good point. So in in both senses, right? When I was a part of the advertising campaign for having a more diverse and inclusive college campus, I was an articulated other. That is, or I was an articulated member of the environment mm -hmm. that could be perceived as an other, yeah, right? Yeah. So the institution was articulating my image, right, in a mass mediated way on posters, on digital representations, that kind of thing. And my otherness is subject to the construction of uh, how other people see me, yeah. right? When I talk about myself, though, I am articulating myself as an other, right? Okay, because right. it is you are representing yourself. Constantly. In my own head, in my self-concept, I am seeing myself as someone who is incongruent with the environment I was immediately operating in. Mm -hmm. And there may be some daylight between how I saw myself versus how other people saw me. Sure. Right? Sure. Other people may not have seen myself as an other, but in my own head, that was my own mental mapping of the environment. Okay. Right? All right. So in the case that when we talk about articulation as a production, as a thing that is produced from another source, that self-concept was an articulation on my own part. I gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Right. Okay. Now, what does all this have to do with orcs uh, or anything <laughs> else? Right. Articulated others are entities that stand out uh, visually, narratively, in some sort of you know story construction. Right. They stand out as being on the outside. Um, I think of like in the Lord of the Rings. Right. You have classes. You have people that are meant to belong. 
Yes. Right. You have the race of humans, right? The race of men, particularly the men from the West, not to be confused with the men of the South or the men of the East, who are in some cases articulated those as well, even though they classify the same species as human. Right. Their ethnic identities of like the of the Haradrim, for example, or the Easterlings, uh, or the Southern men right. uh in, in the southern part of Gondor. Their ethnic identities articulate them as others that are incompatible with this dominant uh, hegemony set up by, you know, the the uh, race of men like the Rohan, the Rohirrim, uh, or the Dunedain, or any of them. Right, right. They they are literally framed differently. Right. The, right. They are. If we the amount of screen time that they get, as well as the types of framing, the literal framing of them, oftentimes they're they're framed as a group of people rather than individuals. They yes. don't get much, if any, uh, like speaking time. In at, le- at least, if we're referring to the original uh, yeah. movie uh, trilogy, then they they don't get any speaking time, and uh, there's no character development and so on, and all of that. In contrast to all the other characters, it, it helps to uh, articulate them as an other, right? Right. Others in the context of narratives are, and this actually happens also in like the case of the news, for example, are often framed as faceless. Yeah. Right. They exist, but not in a humane or dimensionalized way. Yeah. They are uh, window dressing, right? Or yep. they are a part of the scenery or they are a subject to be discussed, but not to engage with. Right. Right. right? They They can be catalysts for the narrative, but they aren't necessarily... Um, entities that navigate the narrative themselves. Right. Or they may be the focus of the narrative, but not in a way that it recognizes their agency or autonomy or any sort of, you know, humane aspect of them. Yeah. The other thing is, though, they may be engaged with, but if they are, they are burdened with signifiers that, uh, that cause stigmatization or ostracization. Excuse me. Right. Yeah. So, for example, um, there's an awesome article that I use in my research all the time called The Orientalized Other and Corrosive Femininity Threats to White Masculinity in 300 that is written by David O. and Doreen Kutufam, mm. which is an awesome exploration of how the movie 300 uses race, class, and gender in some interesting ways to talk about the orientalized others, right? Oh, in this yeah. case, the Persian army in the 300 mm-hmm. in the movie 300, uh, which if you're not familiar is a uh, graphic is an adaptation of a graphic novel by Frank Miller, which is a adaptation of a uh, <laughs> myth, often mythologized historic battle between the Spartans uh, and the um, and the Persian army and uh, King Xerxes' invasion of Greece, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It basically boils down to the uh, Spartans represent the uh, healthy, noble West, mm-hmm. right? Right, right. Whereas the uh, Persians represent the faceless hordes of the East and the Orient, as it were, yeah. and in a very pejorative sense. And, you know, how they are articulated as uh, sexually perverse and cruel and barbaric and superstitious and X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And there's all kinds of other stuff there. If if you ever have the chance, if one has the chance, I strongly encourage, you know, looking up this reading. It's a, it's a great read. Um, relating yeah, that, if you look mm-hmm. at uh, first season of Game of Thrones, particularly in, in, in contrast, um, what's her name? She goes off... Uh, She's the chosen one, and she goes off, and she is assimilated into this tribe of folks. I'm oh, forgetting Daenerys. names. Say it, Daenerys. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and like very very clearly, 
uh, is using this uh, this language of the articulated other to help draw a contrast between who's important, yeah. who's not, who's who is part of the narrative, who is just helping to facilitate the narrative, and so on. Yeah, and that's actually a good point. Often in um, fantasy settings, the other is constructed in a way that is primitive or yes. savage. Yes. Right. The 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 Dothraki in Game of Thrones were absolutely constructed in that way. Right. Even though she was in the minority uh, in terms of population, and while she was living among the Dothraki, it was clear that she was meant to be the normative center yes. against which they were measured, right? right? Making them others in their own environment. Right. right? Which okay. is very consistent with sort of like white savory kind of stuff. Right. 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 I mean, right. even even just how it is visually depicted, she is whenever she is depicted amongst the crowd of of the Dothraki, like she is literally centered amongst them, right? Like she, yeah. she is made compositionally on the screen, made to be the oh, yeah. center focus. Everyone ends up looking at her, reaching out to her. Uh, you know, uh, she. There is oftentimes a space around her amongst the crowd, helping to further emphasize through visual contrast who it is that is the focus of not only the crowd but also the audience as well we are all supposed to look at her from the from this sort of perspective right exactly and there's a great example of that in um i think it's in the liberation of marine uh and i forget what season of game of thrones it is but where she liberates the enslaved people of marine and there's that scene where she is you know the marine are uh these you know, very dark, you know, dark skinned folks who are enslaved. Uh, they're not black, but they're, they're a dark brown and they're like holding her up. Yes. And she's like basically crowd surfing over them. And the, yep. the color contrast is vibrant. Yep. Right. And, and there are so many of them in that shot that you can see faces, but you don't really see the faces right. as right. it were. Right. So again, it goes back to this idea of they are the more or less subject of this, right? Yeah. She is there to save them, but even then they're not the dimensional humane focus right right right? and and the the language of cinema if we're going to look at it uh if we're going to look primarily at cinematic uh art forms the actual language of cinema is to use close-ups and the closer the camera is to the face the more audiences connect emotionally to the person and empathize with the person we are encouraged to and and that can be villains that can also be uh heroes that can be anywhere in between um that's just the effect that takes place and so if you want someone to feel what the person on screen is feeling you have to get the camera closer and that the further and further away we are then the less we connect on an emotional level with them and the more we focus the more we focus on as well as connect with just the functional aspect of what they're doing in the scene and mm-hmm. nuanced characters get both nuanced characters characters that we are supposed to connect with but also follow along in the narrative we get this wide shot establishment of like where they are who they where they are in relation to the other characters what their relationship to their environment and their surroundings are they're they're given all of that but then they're also given these like let's remove the context and let's focus in on just what they're they're feeling at the moment right and right and that uh, part of that language of def- defining who is the other and who is not is deciding who gets this breadth of framing 
and who mm-hmm. gets the less diverse framing, right? Who gets yeah. captured in wide shots more often than anything mm-hmm. else. Yeah. And then when those close-up shots do occur, there's usually something there to distract from the intimacy, right? There's some sort of signifier. Yeah. There's, it might be a visual signifier of, you know, their appearance, maybe their skin color, if it's a particularly outlandish color, uh, as in the case of like science fiction or fantasy, or it might be some sort of adornment. Think of like in 300 uh, Xerxes, right? He's got all these piercings and the adornments and that kind of stuff. Uh, Supposed to be surrealistic or off-putting or or something that is disturbing Mm -hmm. in some way. Yeah. Right. Or in the case of the orcs from Lord of the Rings, it's their ugliness. And ugliness is often a way of indicating another. And this is a, this is an unfortunate trope that has plagued a lot of um, stories for centuries. Totally. If you have a villain, they are ugly, right? Yep. yep. And and this has, you know, not for nothing, uh, this has been tied often to anti-Semitic tropes uh, where characters are um, framed as or implied to be Jewish. Uh, mm-hmm. If they have a particularly ugly feature of a hooked nose, right, of a large in large size, all yep. with like a very you know weak uh, jaw or chin or, or something along those lines, these almost monstrous features that resemble like beaks or in the case of hands that might yep. be claws, things like that. We we see that all over like fairy tales and that kind of thing. I actually um, I, I can't remember exactly where, but I know that the, I came across a reading where. Um, the descriptions of dwarves in Norse mythology didn't really become, um, in my understanding, didn't really come to include being short and stout and like ugly until exposure to anti-Semitic uh, Christian society, mm-hmm. right? That the the confluence of these things, not to say that like when people were when when the uh, the clerics, the, the Christian clerics who were, you know, transcribing the, the, these Eddas and these, these sagas were intentionally making them into Jewish uh, folks or uh, Jewish parallels, but they were borrowing from those tropes to signify that these dwarves were undesirable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yep. Um, so, I, mm-hmm. I mean, another example, just to add on to it, uh, it's just like clear as day is Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Uh, the dinner, uh, <laughs> the dinner scene. Uh, I know yes. there's there's lots of opportunities for it throughout the entire film, but the dinner scene is one in which um, we see an example of like how close ups for an otherized persona on screen is like crafted, right? That like mm-hmm. w- when we see the facial expressions of the dominant characters, their expressions are are suggesting how we should feel about the close-ups of these other characters the the others in the scene that we are supposed to feel disgust we're supposed to feel frightened we're supposed to be disturbed at not mm. only the foods that people are are eating but the ways in which they're eating it the, the chilled in, monkey brains right the the enjoyment that they are feeling in the moment yeah. and and so on and so we get this like kind of a call and response it's very rhythmic of a scene in how it's cut we get a close up of um our our heroine i can't remember her name um oh, yeah. what whatever her name was like we we have a close up of her and she looks her eye line looks one way and she cringes and then we get to 
we cut to a close up of someone like slurping a monkey brain out of a skull or something like that, right? And just mm-hmm. like this personal satisfaction this person gets out of that that situation, and then we get back to her and she cringes all the more or squeals or something like that, right? And and we are supposed to feel sympathetic to her and we are supposed to be disgusted by them and we're supposed to feel sorry that she's in this situation and and mm-hmm. it's supposed to feel torturous for her. Whereas people are just like, in all reality, I know in the end, the story is trying to say that these people are all corrupt. And that's the vehicle that we're like, this dinner scene is a vehicle for showing their corruptness. But at the at the end of the day, these these are just people eating food that's very normal to them. In the context of the narrative, yeah, yeah. That's all it is, right? On a practical level, it's not actually telling us how corrupt they are, but we're using this scene as a way to try and signify that. And and, um, I think think it ends up, things like that help to reinforce, uh, they certainly have no like mind control over us, but they do definitely reinforce these sorts of... um, Eurocentric and white centric ideals and and um, traditions and things like that. That those who deviate oh, yeah. from these sorts of traditions are people to detest, people to be scared of, people to be disgusted by. Um, yeah, definitely. People to be yeah, people to feel unsafe around in particular, right? Yeah. Uh, and and yeah, and look, I you know I love the the Indiana Jones um, at least the first three movies. I haven't seen the Crystal Skull. But they they are case studies in conveying racist stereotypes and tropes. Totally. Uh, yeah, um, in that vein, actually. Plus, I, mean, I I'm I hoped I, I I'm sorry if this bursts anyone's bubbles, but um, why are we cool with jumping out of an airplane with a life raft and surviving as like a legitimate beginning to a film? I I don't get it. I, when did that happen? That happened at the beginning of Temple of Doom. Does it? Yeah. Okay, I don't, okay. He's like on some, he, It's it starts off like it's a James Bond film. He's on some luxurious plane. He's incognito. Uh-huh. He's yeah. trying to act like he's someone else. And he's in this nice suit. And and our heroine, he happened, they don't know each other yet, but this is how they get introduced to each other. They survive a plane crash by like making a narrow escape from the bad guys by jumping onto this you know, emergency life raft that you know blows up, and then they I ride mean, it onto a snowy mountain, sled down it, they walk away unscathed. What? I forgot about that part How of the movie. How can you invest in but, a movie that starts like that? I, I mean, know. is it is it better or worse than surviving a um, you know uh, an explosion, a bomb by hiding in a refrigerator? Well, okay, so I yeah, but that's after. Like, why did we continue with this series if that's the way this film started? Like, we 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 progressed or digressed into explaining ex, uh, surviving an explosion of a nuclear bomb via refrigerator. I mean, I'm you know I'm willing to suspend my disbelief in a world where a man is you know you know pulling people's hearts out with his bare hands. I'm willing to look past. <laughs> the the weird physics of jumping out of a plane with a life raft. All right. Uh, oh, uh, Jack Nahigian, uh has tried several times to start the conversation about why I'm not a fan of Indiana Jones because he uh-huh. saw my letterboxed score for it, and um, I have not had the time yet to really like sit down and like. But one of these days, Jack, 
we'll do this. Uh, the answer is you're not fun. That's, that's I, the short Well, answer. I mean, if, if anyone knows me, there's a reason why I apologize when I introduce myself. The other part of this, hi, I'm Barry. I'm sorry. I'm not fun. Um, <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. it's all implied. It's all part it's, of it. Yeah. Um, so going back to orcs, which is what we're trying to talk about here. Uh, we got off on that. Although Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom actually uh, correlates because, at least according to Tolkien, uh, the orcs in his in, in his uh, iteration of them were heavily influenced by, um, in some extent, you know, ham-fistedly included, uh, anti-Mongolian stereotypes. Like oh, okay. he was he was pulling from tropes there. Now, the extent to which like he meant to be making a point about it or anything like that, I can't say. Sure. I don't know if this was him like indulging in this sort of like colonial fantasy or if this was him trying to make a point about, you know, how ugly these stereotypes are. I cannot describe authority and intent, I mean, but I can say huh? It, it, without knowing anything really, 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 it's probably mm-hmm. a mixture of. Yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah, <laughs> there's probably, probably some combination of these things. Right. Yeah. By the way, just to put a pin in this and I'm sorry, re- uh, listeners, I don't have a follow up for this. I have to read the article, but I found an article about how uh Tolkien and Stuart Hall uh, cross paths. Oh, goodness. When Stuart Hall was a graduate student and that uh, Tolkien may have uh, discouraged him from going into a particular graduate program because of his prejudice against uh, people from uh, the Caribbean. So that's as much as I know. I've got the article downloaded on my computer. I need to read it. If there isn't a more geeky academic conversation to have the, it's the, a conversation about the time Stuart Hall crossed paths with J.R.R. Tolkien <laughs> the, the 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 father of modern fantasy and the father of modern cultural studies yeah. <laughs> having an unfortunate interaction <laughs> yeah right yeah um anyway I need to circle back to that I can't wait I'll, I want to hear about it yeah yeah so it's in my forever growing, you know, to read list. Anyway, so when Tolkien creates these orcs, they become they're 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 dark skinned, they're ugly, they're savage. Uh, they don't canonically have a British accent, unlike in the adaptations, <laughs> right? <laughs> but they 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 have this you know sort of very savage, barbaric way about them, and so yeah. it's very easy to to sort of transpose these dark continent tropes onto them, right? Or oh, Orientalist sure. tropes, that kind of thing, for right? Sure. And so they become these metaphorical, uh, symbolic, articulated others, yeah. right? For the people in the East and that sort of stuff. However, I want to go a different route with this. I'm not discouraging or or knocking that interpretation. I think there's a lot of validity to it. I want to take this other percept uh, this other tact and that is one of the things that tolkien talks about in his legendarium is that the orcs were originally elves and they talk about this in the rings of power yes right the original uruks were elves that were tortured and they were captured tortured and mutilated yeah right uh some were captured some came to morgoth the uh the the evil god uh willingly but the point is they were all horrifically disfigured um into these things right into these baser versions of elves Mm -hmm. right they can only be satisfied by you know consuming the flesh of other species uh that that do not engage any productive construction other than you know to crudely meet their needs things like that so that being said if we understand that also you know tolkien was a veteran right Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. He served in World War II, saw some horrific things. Um, World War II or World War, World War I? I'm sorry. No, he served in World War I. Yeah, Pardon okay. me. His son, I think one of his sons, maybe Christopher, served in World War II. Excuse me. He served in World War I, right? Um, you know, fighting in trenches, all that kind of stuff. Uh, if memory serves, he and Adolf Hitler may have been at, this, at a, uh, the same battle at different times. Hmm. Um yeah, I remember coming across that somewhere along the way. Anyway, I, I'm, I'm the, where I'm going with this is that if we understand that the orcs are the result of torture and suffering, maybe they're a articulate, maybe they're a representation of articulated others in terms of those who have PTSD, hmm. right? Yeah. Maybe they, because orcs only know war and conflict, right? Maybe we can read them as articulated others that are being ostracized by society that are at odds with society that have suffered wartime trauma, right? Sure, sure. And, I mean, and, it, and where I'm going with that is that, and again, I'm not ascribing intent to, to Tolkien. I'm not saying this is what he was going for. I'm saying that in our reading of that, we often see the homeless or the, those without uh, houses. Mm-hmm. We often see people who are in need of uh, psychiatric care in a antagonistic way. Right. They are perhaps framed as burdens to society or dangers to those around them. They are out of their, they are framed as being out of their minds and therefore, you know, volatile or aggressive. Um, there was a recent instance of a homeless man who was, uh, murdered. Uh, yes. he was killed by, uh, a civilian, uh, former, uh, military member on a subway in New York City. Yeah. Right? I was going to bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. So, when I would say that, you know, if we see them as, you know, the, the, those who have been shaped by trauma and the traumatized and how we often frame that antagonistically in society, I think that's another way of looking at them as an articulated other. Hmm. Because right. also part of that is also that orcs can't be assimilated into society. And often we treat the, those who have, um, cognitive disabilities or people who have psychological trauma as folks who are irreconcilable with normative society mm-hmm, mm-hmm. such that they need their own spaces. Right, right. Right. I think, I think that's also part of, it's not an overt part of it, but th- there is some, <clears throat> some discussions I've, I've listened to or been around that talk about this issue of mass shootings and mental health being something that is tied to, um, uh, people particularly uh, from veteran backgrounds, not not saying that there's mm-hmm. a whole lot of tie between veteran status and mass shootings, uh, but it also isn't non-existent either. And sure. it, but I, I think, I, I wonder about that though, obviously because also mental health is not specifically, it's not clearly tied to some of these issues as well, which I, I guess is what you're getting at, right? That like um, the these aspects of representation of the articulated other can lead to false conclusions about how to handle issues of of things like mental health in, in this discussion. It can. Right? It can. It, it, it leads to these sort of narrative shorthands that then become real world perspectives, yeah. right, for how to deal or not deal. Uh, with folks like this, maybe it's that we have to shun them or that we have to engage with them in an antagonistic way, sometimes even lethally, as in the case of the gentleman who was uh, killed in a, in recently in New York City on the subway. Um, 
my point though, and some might hear this and think, oh, well, you're comparing, you know, the 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 houseless and the traumatized and veterans to orcs who are bloodthirsty monsters. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if we consider orcs as traumatized articulated others, right, who are engaging in a behavior based on instinct, based on an almost compulsory compulsory need to engage in violence in a way that's almost beyond their own control. Yeah. If we take that view, then we are also forced to see them as victims. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're also forced to see them as people who have been victimized and people who have been traumatized, right? Yeah, I, I guess I guess the the only issue that I have with with going down that road is not so much because I, I think that's I think that's an interesting way of looking at or reframing what we've looked at as like the bad guy in this story that is well beloved. Um, th- the only issue so far that I can see, and I'd be interested to hear how you, how you respond to it is, is that the story doesn't change how it reacts to those characters, even if we try to reframe what, what we, what we see in those characters, if you will, you know, like if I, if I try and reframe the, uh, the orcs in, in that narrative it it is it is interesting to to kind of view them in that way and to to view them as um as victims of this whole system that turned them into what they are that doesn't change how aragorn approaches them though you know what i mean no but it might change how we see aragorn (laughs) for sure for sure i i guess i guess what i'm getting at is the story frames Aragorn in a certain way and we are not, the story never encourages us to really view him that way. I guess it's the same, it's the same issue that I have with this fun little sort of subversion of the star Wars narrative that the rebels are um, really just like a a terrorist religious extremist cell and uh, the the empire is just trying to create a, a stable society in which people can survive and this articulated other the rebels yeah. are are just trying to tear it down because of their religious extremism you know they once had dominant power and they no longer do and now the religious uh the religious extremists are just trying to take back power and and exert their conservative control again you know uh, um I, I mean have you heard that take before no, I haven't. Oh, you haven't. Okay. No. I, I I think it's I think it's an interesting thought experiment, but at the same time, that doesn't change how the vehicle chooses to drive the narrative. Like, sure, it, it still ends up. We cannot we cannot escape how the authors framed Darth Vader as the bad guy that re- gets redeemed in the end, but he's the big he's the baddie. Right. Yeah. And and the emperor yeah. is the baddie, even if we we play around with it. it. We have to resort to fan fiction models where we where we rewrite our own narrative. Right. Mm-hmm. In order to be able to to really um, completely dismantle that and, and subvert the the narrative like the narrative has to be rewritten in order to completely subvert it, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it it's true. Right. The, the, the beats of the story don't change significantly if you see the orcs as being uh as being i won't say sympathetic but m- more open to sympathy yeah, right yeah uh 
Yeah, and, and it's it's the same thing with like um oh geez. It's like the the Trollocs in Wheel of Time, right? The Trollocs are these monsters yeah, yeah. that are these animal human hybrids um that are that were created uh by basically Aya Sedai or magic users who were trying to create like an army, right? Yeah. They were they were in as much as none of us were willing to be made, right? None of us consented into this, at least not to the best of anyone's knowledge, mm-hmm. right? They they least of all had any choice in their creation, and certainly not in the uh, for the reasons that they engage in. But my my point with this is not to necessarily change the story, or even to um, cast you know Aragorn in a negative light. Although one could see the uh, the extermination of the orcs and the orc homeland of Mordor as a kind of genocide. Mm. Um, it's the, it, it, it asks the question of, well, how did they become this way? And what does that mean for us? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Right. Understanding that we're operating with metaphors, sim, uh, symbols and parallels here. Right. Um, without respect for or without regard for the author's intent because of course we can't know when Tolkien was you know die hard about it. I'm not writing you know uh Allegory. allegories and next yeah. whatever old man okay look uh, yeah. <laughs> as the audience we have the right and responsibility to interpret these as we will right and so yeah the if we recognize that these are these orcs were victims then we also may recognize that they actually have a society right that they mm-hmm. uh and that the orcs in our own real world are not actually just monodimensional monsters or mm-hmm. aberrations mm-hmm. right they are they had a cause they had a thing they had a a journey that led them to the point that they are and that journey continues yeah. right it doesn't stop with them being demonized in this kind of way it can progress past that right so but what i'm trying to go they, for they here have, is a bit there, of a more there is a possibility for a legitimate motive outside of i like evil and i don't like good right 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 what I'm saying is like there's if we if we have this more dimensional perspective on this clearly articulated other, then in spite we can, of the narrative, in spite of the narrative, then perhaps we can come to a more humane conclusion in our own real world. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I get that. And I, I, I see parallels to how I've interpreted some aspects of other other texts like uh, Frozen, for example, Um the the yeah. Two, the yeah I'm bringing it there uh, the <laughs> Gabriel just raised one eyebrow to such a suspecting level I'm 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 so confused as to where, where this is going where, Barry well yes. uh, well uh, in terms of this relationship between the narrative and and the the characters that are depicted and and trying to interpret motives um, the the parents of Elsa and what's the other sister's name I can't remember Anna. Uh, on a like the parents are depicted as people just doing the best that they can trying to trying to uh help their their daughters out and you know the whole like uh don't ever show anyone that you can do these things method uh, uh that's that's terrible a- mm-hmm. and yet w- the narrative attempts to try even though the narrative's fairly um straightforward in in understanding that this is probably not the best way to have gone about this uh there's still a, a the narrative frames the parents in a kind of reverence that doesn't acknowledge that they kind of are directly responsible for 
the ways mm-hmm. in which the characters move on from there, right? And yeah. and um, I, I think there's some usefulness in, in being able to, in spite of the narrative, um, look at look at the equation that was set up and recognize where the miscalculation was was um, put into place. And and with with like our our orcs, I think that's also something that that goes underappreciated in popular discourses about pop media that like reinterpretation or re like rehashing these stories allows for an opportunity to interrogate some of the original narrative. So like Rings of Power yeah. does have this moment near the end of this the first season where the argument for the orcs is laid out a little bit more sympathetically. Uh, ulti- yeah. Ultimately, the orcs do not get to have that, and there's questions about the how much of a good faith this narrative is presented. But the 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 presentation of look, we have a right to exist as well, and we just want a place. Can we just have a place, right? And y'all are preventing us from having a place. Why can't we have that? You know, and and I think I think there's I think there's some value in 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 that. I I know a lot of fandom really doesn't appreciate reinterpretations or or rehashing old narratives because it goes away from canon but i think there's something valuable about that right i think i think yeah. being able to subvert the narrative in in meaningful ways has has some usefulness yeah no i think you're right because ultimately you know at the end of rings of power when they activate um mountain doom yeah. right and the volcano erupts it is about creating a more hospitable homeland right yeah. It is. It is also uh, an act of genocide against the humans that yes. are living in that environment. Totally. Um, so the the two are inseparable. Uh, but yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I, it, it actually was interesting about that as well. Um, and I'm going to make this. I'm going to make this weird. Um, and I'm I'm so sorry uh, for for this. But uh, <laughs> I, so I was talking to a family member of mine, extended family. Uh, whose kids love Frozen. And we were talking about this and the X-Men and powers and mutants and that kind of thing. And I said, well, you know, the the X-Men have at times been interpreted as, um, uh, as you know, metaphors for the LGBTQ community in particular yes. because, you know, the powers come about, you know, in the teenage years, usually in response to a particular moment of duress, that kind of thing that leads to something happening that they, you know, then have to like learn how to deal with. Right. And so yeah. we could see that as a parallel to like sexual awakenings at, you know, the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the teen or preteen stage. Um, and then it, it occurred to me, it's like, Oh, maybe that's the case with like frozen as well. Right. Yeah. Uh, something along those lines. And I'm not necessarily talking in terms of like a closeted sexual identity, but we could put it in terms of the ways in which parents repress things about their children. Yeah. Right. It could be sexual uh, orientation. It could be gender expression. It could be ethnic identity. It could be religious practice. It could be any number of things. It could be heterosexual sexual expression, you know, like. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, No, in in a very sort of strict, regulated, puritanical sense, perhaps as as you know, may be the case. So, yeah, I mean, it could be any number of uh, immutable aspects of identity that then become repressed and that signifier being a a way in which an articulated other is created or symbolized on the screen Mm. right the parents are then given a lot of grace because oh they're just looking out for their kid because they're trying to keep them from being an articulated other yeah right they're trying to keep them from being someone who stands out 
uh, in you know this ostracized way. Yeah. Right. Which is on one hand, yeah, that makes a degree of sense as a parent. You want your kid to fit in, and you want your kid to, to have the path of least resistance. On the other hand, you're also asking them to silence a part of themselves that is germane to who they are. Right. Right. Yeah. And that obviously has down the river, you know, consequences. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 And that that confusion between advocacy for the child versus, uh, you know, uh, protection, if you will, like yeah. uh, con- confusing the two and thinking that protecting your child in a very superficial way is also advocacy for them can 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 be kind of hard and i think i think there's a certain uh, i i'm not one to say that frozen is a bad movie because of this thing you know but i i do think it is one of those where it, uh i think it's a good example of how the narrative can sometimes clash with taking the the point all the way right yeah because because the the film is not willing to lay the criticism on the parents entirely, they acknowledge what the parents did, but not willing to grapple with the full criticism of parenting yeah. and how we end up doing these things to our kids. Yeah, I, I think sometimes the narrative really uh, impedes any sort of progressive message there might be w- within the characters. Well, they're making a third one, so maybe yeah. we'll get to see that <laughs> with Anna and Elsa in like therapy, talking about you know their traumatic upbringing. Oh, it's being locked They're in always the castle. making another one. <laughs> right? uh, hey, if it's making money, uh, um, right? Uh, one of these days, we need to talk about the concept of franchises uh, uh, yeah. as 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 ideological vehicles. Anyway, um, so let's pull this to a close. Um, so folks moving forward, you know, check out that reading that I talked about earlier, the, the orientalized other and corrosive femininity threats to white masculinity in 300 by David O and Doreen Kutufam, uh, consider ways in which that you see articulated others created and constructed, right. And how they operate within narratives. Are these articulated others, um, pariahs? Are they villains? Are they visually signified through ugliness? Are they redeemed characters? Are they characters that we're, that we feel sympathetic for? Uh, what sort of function do they serve within the story? And then how can we look past that to a more dimensional way of conceptualizing the character? And what does that mean for their real world parallels there, you know, that they are standing in for metaphorically or symbolically? All right, folks, thanks for coming by the office. Um, we'll catch you next week. All right. See ya. Oh, wait, I forgot to include, obviously, uh, you know, like, share, comment, you know, share us with your friends and enemies, play us during awkward uh, dinner conversations, play us uh, while you're walking down the aisle to your betrothed, um, you know. Yeah, work, work this episode into your uh, your wedding vows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Best practices. Uh, I the wed my articulated other, uh, something along those lines. Anyway, you can get romantic with it. So, uh, and of course, you know, you can find more of this on TikTok and Instagram and Twitter at GA Cruise underscore PhD. You can email us at GA Cruise PhD at gmail.com. Um, yeah, we'll catch you next time. Bye.